The first reading is taken from 2 Kings, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Elijah taken up to heaven. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and said, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha, the Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. The company of the prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked him, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied, so be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his coat, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took off his garment and tore it in two. This is the end of the first reading. The second reading is from Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He, didn't, uh, he did not know what to say. 
they were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they, they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Thank you both very much. Is it, can I just have the clicker again? So shall we pray? Father, we pray that as we uh, meditate on your word this morning, that it might come alive to us, that it might do something in our hearts, and that you would come in through faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this morning we read about uh, a mountaintop experience. Uh, and I wonder if you've ever had a mountaintop experience. It's, um, it's probably not something that people in Holland have very often. Uh, because, yeah, well, uh, the, you know our tallest mountain is 300 meters, and it's actually in Belgium. So that, this is just to indicate how few mountains we have. But you may have had a, a mountaintop experience uh, on an actual mountain, or you might have had a, uh, a, a metaphorical mountaintop experience. You know, you know the kind of experience, the one that... Uh, sort of renews your joy and brings you energy and it fills you with hope again. You're feeling optimistic again. It gives you fresh energy to, to uh, continue going. That's what this experience is like for uh, the three disciples of Jesus' inner circle who, who are uh, with him uh, for this event, who witnessed the transfiguration, as it's called. Uh, and we're going to look at what this mountaintop experience uh, can teach us and what we can learn from the uh, transfiguration. The first thing that it, that it uh, uh, is meant to teach us is that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, in the opening chapters of the Gospel of Mark, which is what our passage was from, uh, Mark's very first sentence is that he wants to teach us the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So that's his purpose in writing his, his gospel. And this text give, gives three bits of proof that Jesus in, is in fact uh, the Son of God. Uh, we read in verse 3, His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So if you look in the Old Testament and you, you look at who, who wears dazzlingly white clothes, there's only really one, one person, and that is God. So for example... Uh, there is a, a vision from the prophet Daniel uh, who sees God on his throne and he says that his clothes were as white as snow. But there are, there are also other uh, references such as Psalm 104, which says that the Lord wraps himself in light as in a garment. So the dazzling whiteness of Jesus' clothes reveals his divinity, uh, shows that he is the son of God. So uh, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, I'm wearing white shoes and as we were practicing, Lizelle and Ezra walked in, and they're both wearing white shoes as well. That this was not planned. It just shows, you know, how seriously we take, we take our role, that we ma match, matched in white to, uh, as, a, as a sermon illustration for you, so to say. 
But that's, so that's the, first, that's the first bit of proof, right? He's in dazzling white, and that for people who know the Old Testament, that means uh, it's a reference to divinity, to, to, uh, to God. A second bit of proof is, of course, the, the appearance of Moses and Elijah. You may remember that a little while ago, I think it was in Advent, we looked at a passage in John, uh, in which people were asking whether Jesus was perhaps a reincarnation of Moses or Elijah. And uh, their appearance here may point to the fact that uh, together they rep- represent the law and the prophets. So the law uh, written by Moses and Elijah, uh, one of the uh, pr- primary prophets. And the law and the prophets were Jesus' way in the Gospels of talking about the scriptures. So uh, uh, he says, uh, I have come uh, to, uh, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And through, through their presence here with Jesus, the fact that they appear here gives authority to Jesus' message. says, yes, he is, in fact, who, who he is claiming to be. He is the one to whom the law and the prophets point. He's the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. Uh, their appearance could also point uh, to a prophecy in Malachi, uh, which are the very last sentences that you have in the Old Testament. Uh, and these are, these are two of the last sentences. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and the laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. So right at the old, end of the Old Testament, this prophet is uh, saying a prophecy in which he is mentioning Moses and Elijah. And in this, con- in this context, uh, they have what's called an eschatological fun- function, which means that they, it's talking about the, the end times, the end of time, when, when God will return to rule this world. And so it may be that their appearance here signals uh, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan for this world. So we have the, the dazzling white clothes, we have the uh, presence of Moses and Elijah, and then finally they hear a voice. They hear a voice. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So there's this voice that comes from the cloud, and you may remember that there's another instance in the Gospels in which there's a voice uh, that comes from a cloud from above. Uh, that's, it's God's voice, and he says something very similar uh, at the other occasion, which is when Jesus is baptized. At Jesus' baptism, God says, you are my son whom I love. So he's saying to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. At the transfiguration, God says, this is my son whom I love. Meaning he's really speaking to the other people present there, saying, this is uh, my son. This is the son of God. This is the person. Uh, this is who he, who he claims to be. He is who he says he is. So that's the first thing that we learn from the transfiguration, that Jesus is the son of God. The second thing uh, that this mountaintop experience shows us is that God relates to us through faith in Jesus. Verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. In Mark's Gospel, this is already the fifth time, we're only in chapter 9, and this is already the fifth time that Jesus has commanded people who have witnessed something about him in terms of miracles, uh, to not tell anyone else what they've witnessed, which may seem to us as not a very good evangelistic strategy, right? To, to not tell what you've seen. 
Uh, scholars call this the Mark and secrets because it's especially in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus uh, is very secretive, that he's, he's saying to not tell any, anyone else. Uh, on, the, on, on the one hand, there's a practical reason for the secrecy because uh, if Jesus would have straight away revealed who he was, then his ministry would have straight away come to an end. He would have been persecuted straight away. He would have been silenced. Um, and so we see that Jesus is holding back from declaring who he is until his ministry on earth is complete. He's sometimes quoted as saying, my time has not yet come, meaning my time to reveal in public who I am has not yet come. And then when he says, my time has come, you see that when he does reveal himself, that straight away he's arrested and uh, he is sentenced to death. So that's the practical reason why, why, why there's this secrecy. But there's also a spiritual reason. It's interesting that Jesus decides to only take his three closest friends uh, to witness the transfiguration. Why not all the disciples? Why not all his followers? The more the better, right? Imagine the impact it would have had on their faith. Uh, imagine what the impact would have been on your faith if you would have been there uh, up on the mountain seeing that. Then surely nothing would have been able to shake you afterwards, right? That would be the definitive piece of proof that you needed uh, to know that Jesus is who he says he is. Nothing would ever make you doubt again, right? Wrong. Because this is, uh, look at Peter, he's there, and uh, this is really Peter's last time in Mark that he's mentioned before, uh, before the time that he betrays Jesus and denies knowing him and is filled with doubt and filled with fear. And it seems that suddenly this experience on the mountaintop is, is miles away uh, and, and faded from memory. You may have had your own spiritual mountaintop experiences. You may have had a, a, a prayer uh, that was uh, answered. Uh, you may have had a, a, a miracle that you witnessed. You, might, you may have had a time in your life when God felt very close, when he felt very real, when your faith was very strong. But uh, if you've experienced that, then chances are that you've also experienced the valleys. That you've, We don't live on the tops of the mountains, right? We, you, you've also experienced the valleys. You've also had those moments which leave you wondering and questioning what you've experienced and if it was all true. So we all know, just like Peter, what it is to have faith and to be, feel strong in our faith and what it means to, to doubt. And this is how God chooses to relate to us. So he doesn't shout from the heavens, here I am, uh, there is no doubt, this is who I am. He doesn't offer us proof either that can't be refuted. He doesn't say, I've got an argument here and there's nothing you can say against it. He doesn't overwhelm us. And the reason for that is that he, he wants relationship with us. He offers us relationship. And relationship is always based on faith and on trust. That's true of our relationship with God. It's true of our relationship with each other as well. The relationships that you have with your partner or with your parents or with your children or with your friends are all based on mutual trust. Uh, not on rock-solid proof. They're all relationships which hopefully become stronger over time as you get to know each other better. And the same is true of God. His invitation is not to approach him as a scientific experiment, seeing whether we can prick a hole in his thesis. Uh, he doesn't want us to approach him as if we were in a court of law, seeing whether the claims that he has holds up or, or whether he can be disproven. 
He invites us into a relationship to get to know him, to learn to walk with him, to experience for ourselves that he is faithful and trustworthy. It takes faith because the essence of relationship is faith, is trust. And for our own faith, this means that you can get close to God with facts and with evidence and with arguments for his existence and for the reliability of the Bible and all of this. This is a lot of what we do in in, in Alpha. Uh, we, We talk about these kind of things. But that gets you most of the way. It doesn't get you all of the way because God refuses to be pinned down. He wants to relate to us through faith. Uh, Tim Keller says, uh, there is no foolproof evidence for God. There is only a foolproof person, and that is Jesus. So that's, uh, th- th- that is, you always are left with the final step of faith that you require. So what Jesus is doing throughout the Gospels is, yes, to show us the evidence that he is who he says he is, but he also invites us to take the step of faith. So you may be sitting here today thinking, well, I'm pretty convinced I can see how Jesus might be who he says he is, but I'm waiting for the final bit of evidence, the final thing to help me make the jump. So let me disappoint you. That won't come because it may be that you get the evidence that you want, but you'll always find something else then uh, uh, to keep you away. God relates to us uh, through faith. You have to jump in and try it out. That's how you experience it. And then you'll uh, not just be able to argue the sense of the gospel, you'll also experience uh, God's love and presence, which you can't experience from the outside. And uh, thirdly and finally, what do we learn from the transfiguration? Suffering and glory go together. Verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what uh, what to say, Uh, because they were so frightened. So uh, a very early tradition holds that when Mark is writing his gospel, he's writing the testimony of Peter. There's some very early church fathers who say that Mark wrote down the words of Peter. And so uh, I like to imagine Mark and Peter chatting together uh, and Mark saying to Peter, tell me about the mountain and what happened there. And Peter saying, well, and then suddenly Moses... uh, uh, was there and Elijah was there and Mark said, yeah, and what, what did you do next? And then I said to them, let's build three tents. And then Mark just looking very confused because why on earth? What a strange thing to say. I think one of the lessons of this passage is that if you're not quite sure what to say, it's, it's better not to say anything. Uh, that's, uh, so just, just rem- remember that because you might say something very, very silly uh, and uh, He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. You see, Mark, he added that sentence because otherwise we would all be confused here forever. And he's just explaining that what what Peter was saying was actually nonsense. But why might Peter have suggested to build three shelters? Well, we can only guess, but perhaps he was trying to prolong the experience. Maybe he was trying to get everyone to stay there on the mountain, get everyone to, uh, to, to... uh, to stay in the good experience, to, to, la- to make it last a moment longer. And that's a, a human tendency, right? To stay in a place of safety and blessing as long as possible, to avoid, avoid having to come back down from the mountain into the valley. We want to live on the mountaintop where God is close and where faith is strong. 
Uh, you see this pattern in new Christians from time to time. You see that initially they're on the top of the mountain and they have the experience and they're very excited and they're full of faith. And as soon as the first excitement wears off, as soon as things become harder, people can become disillusioned and they can leave uh, their Christian faith behind because they're in search of the next mountaintop experience elsewhere. If we again look at the lives of the, of the disciples, we see that their faith experience is a combination, of course, as, as all of our lives are, of highs and lows. At times they experience the glory, so they're there when Jesus does the miracles. They, they see the healings, they even get to participate in praying and seeing people healed. They, they experience God's love and his presence. And at other times they experience the suffering, so they also have occasions on which they pray and the prayers are not answered. They have moments when they are afraid, when their faith is weak. There are moments when they experience persecution. And so what you see is that the life of the disciples uh, sort of undulates between those highs and those lows. But what you see after the resurrection in the book of Acts, after uh, Jesus has been raised back to life, you see that the disciples are different. You see that they're not moving between glory and suffering all the time but that they experience both at the same time, most of the time. Let me give you an example from Acts 13. Uh, at the end of Acts 13, it says this, the Jewish leaders stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook off the dust of their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So those are two things that don't seem to go together. Persecution on the one hand, and yet they are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Their lives are at stake, yet they are filled with peace. When we think about faith and suffering, we tend to think of them as opposites on a sliding scale. Either we are full of faith because God answers our prayers and we're healed and he's protected us in some way, or we are full of doubt and we're despairing because we are suffering. But what the, what the transfiguration shows us is that the road to glory is paved with suffering. Even as they are coming down the mountain, Jesus is reminding them in that last uh, verse of the passage that he has to die and rise again. Our tendency is to want resurrection without first dying, but that's not the way of Jesus. The Apostle Paul writes that if we die with Christ, so in other words, if we suffer with Christ, we will be raised with Christ. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus talks about the, his crucifixion, which is coming, he's always talking about the moment when he will be glorified. That's the, the language he uses for that, meaning the moment of his death. So you see there that for Jesus, his suffering is his glory. And that's not because Jesus is a, God is a masochist or so. It has to do with the fact that it's his glory because on the cross, God defeats evil and sets us free from sin and death to reign with him forever. So it's a moment of victory. It's a moment of glory as well as of suffering. The transfiguration teaches us that suffering and glory go together. So don't be put off when life is hard. Don't, don't think that a wrong turn has come. Don't be put off when life is hard. Paul says that our present, our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. We get a glimpse of that at the end of the story uh, in the book of Revelation, at the end of the Bible. And John has this vision of the heavens which are opened. Uh, and there are some interesting parallels with our passage today. Because 
the followers of Jesus are all dressed in white. And uh, the, the throne is surrounded by the elders, people like Moses and Elijah, and all who have gone before us. And there's, again, a loud voice which says from the throne, it is done, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So you see here that that voice that first spoke to Jesus, that first proclaimed about Jesus, in the end calls us his children. So that's something to hold on to in the moments when you suffer. Shall we pray? Lord, uh, we thank you so much that you are close to us, whether we realize it or not. We thank you that you relate to us through faith, that uh, you invite us to draw close to you, to get to know you better, to experience uh, you for ourselves. And Father, for all of us here this morning who, who, uh, who are finding this hard at the moment, perhaps dependent on your circumstances, Father, I just pray that you would reveal yourself afresh to them, that they might be strengthened again with a mountaintop experience which carries them through the valleys. And we thank you too, Lord, that in our suffering, which all of us experience at some point in life, we thank you that, uh, that it is simply another stop, step that we take on our road to glory. We thank you that you are faithful and that you will bring us home. So we pray, come Holy Spirit and work in us. Amen.